Hello and welcome to She Been Ready, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Wendy Williams. We are on episode nine, The Body is the Portal. What is the leader? What is a leader? In this conversation with Kairishi Wigington, we conceive of leadership through the learner learning lessons that they become the teacher, that they then become the teacher of those lessons. And in the teaching of the lessons that they've learned through their own embodiment, they are leading. Kairishi and I talk about what it means to conceive of leadership through the embodiment of one's life experience, what it tells us about what it means to live as a fully engaged, fully loved and whole human being and what the effects are when that's not the case for one. Um, She and I are longtime friends. And so we try to do a good enough job of unpacking some of the shared knowings that we have about one another. We met when I was 10 and she was 11, which was a formative time uh, in her life, as you'll hear uh, in terms of what was going on for her. Kairishi has uh, uncovered a very real idea about herself and her health and its hereditary nature, what it may mean for her nieces coming through. Um, And it has really shaped the way that she has began to think about what it means to lead. She said of her niece, um, who is so beautiful and really looks like the spitting image of her. It's, it's scary. Even she says, uh, about her niece that she doesn't want a problem to be created in her that she does not that does not belong to her and so when we think about black women black girls and particularly the body and how the body's embodiment of race of gender of you know sexuality of you know all the ways we can come to be of abilities of ways in which we are different in our abilities, ways in which we have different abilities because of some abilities we don't have, all the range of possibility uh, of being and how that is normed. One of the things that comes up is, you know, the ways in which we can be um, disconnected, made to feel wrong for how we are and who we are. Uh, Kairishi is very brave. Um, I've known that about her since we were girls, and I am still struck by her courage in leading conversations, leading through her own personal embodiment, and leading when she is most vulnerable through that embodiment. So I'd like to share a little bit with you about my dear friend. Um, As is true for all my friends, I love her dearly, Uh, and so this is no exception. She is... She's an educator. Uh, And one of the things you'll hear in our interview is how that started before she had any job. Uh, She's always been teaching and has always figured out how to keep and make her work, um, you know, relevant and and connect her spirit and her energy and her engagement with with a wider group of folks. Um, Currently, she is a special project manager for the Center for Third World Organizing. It's a powerful group. You should look them up, CTWO. The Center for Third World Organizing is a racial justice organization that is dedicated to building social justice movement, led uh, social justice movements that are led by folks of color. So they do training with folks who um, 
of diverse backgrounds across the entire country um, and, you know, who are most closely connected and affected by some of the world's um, issues. They're looking at the voices of, and amplifying the voices of women, of trans folks, of queer folks, of black folks, immigrants, folks with disabilities and those formerly incarcerated um, to advance social justice movements and justice for these communities. Uh, she also is an entrepreneur. She founded and directed a program called Culture Keepers, which she did. She was a uh, an educator um, at a high school in Oakland, California, McClymonds. And what she did as a part of that work was gather and take children on trips to South Africa. This is such a huge part of her own biography because, in fact, it was trips to Africa that uh, were part of her development, her mother's cultural development, and and lessons toward for her and her and her, her brother, um, and also uh, what inspired a lot of, of her work now. And so she created that same opportunity for young people. She knew how powerful it was for young kids, black kids coming out of uh, West Oakland uh, specifically, but um, I'm sure nobody was turned away for not being um, from West Oakland uh, and take, took them to Africa, let them see and be in the cultural continuity, but also um, the dynamism of African culture across the diaspora. She's the owner of the body project and she is a coach. She coaches women on how to access their wildish nature. She helps us to think about what would it mean to live in the full um, expanse of our of our joy and that that can be in all the shapes and forms that our bodies come in. You know, one of the things that we think through and talk about in this in this conversation is the dichotomy uh, that's laid upon the black body. On the one hand, you know, it's a place that as an individual, you can have deep joy and value and curiosity and autonomy around. And at the same time, it has a long legacy, especially because of, you know, global capitalism and um, enslavement and colonization, you know, of sh creating shame and abusing the black body, extracting labor from the black body, not seeing the black body as having an interiority, a cognitive and relational experience with itself and in the world, um, to people, to humanity, that there's a human being in that body from which that those these resources are extracted. Her work is about connecting us back there and also doing so sexually, um, and particularly through bodies that are not in our culture deemed sexually attractive or desirous. She really has a particular type of reclamation and, and pleasure activism. I see in calling people's attention back to um, what is undeniable about the beauty of the body and the beauty of a body in its full revelry um, and enjoyment of it, of its sexuality and of its joy. I feel really grateful to have Kairishi as a friend. Um, you know, you in in this process and doing these podcast interviews, it's been really um, amazing to reconnect and relearn who my friends are, um, especially when you've known someone for as long as she and I have known each other, almost 40 years now. Um, there's just something really special about seeing someone over the arc of their development and still being invited to be along for the ride. So I invite you to join us uh, for this version of the ride uh, that we took uh, in this interview together. It runs a bit long, but let me tell you, if we had our druthers, it would have been much longer. So we've, we've tried to uh, make it reasonable for the podcast length, uh, but it, it's, it's definitely a ride you don't want to miss. So Welcome to She Been Ready, uh, the podcast. We are going to be talking with Kairishi Wigington on the body being the portal for our leadership.
what we what we want to know ultimately from everybody who we talk to is how they knew that they've been ready and been ready to lead. And for us, you know, that is a variety of things. You know, sometimes people put that in this construct of career or some chronological space in life. Other folks, you know, came out that way. And if you ask their mom or their aunties or their cousins or their siblings, they're like, well, when was she not? You know, we called it, you know, womanish or we called it bossy back then. We called it this, or it may be like a key moment that happened in school or in your first or second job, whatever the case may be. We want to know like how you knew that you've been ready, that in fact, that you were in a position that you were doing the work and that you needed to be leading or were uh, in a position of being perhaps overly ready, that you've been ready to do it and that, that perhaps it just wasn't happening and it needed to be the case. I think that's an interesting question. And I think it's layered. I would say both that I came out ready and that my life forced me to be ready. Right. Like Mm. I think it's both. And I think that I always say, like, I, I think like what I, how I really started to learn how to teach is I remember being in, when we were in kindergarten through third grade, my mother would make us be in combination classes okay and so if it was like a second third grade combination I had to be in the we had to be in the lower grade right because she was like you can do your work and then you can do their work well I would do my work the upper grade work and then I would still be bored and because I was bored <laughs> I would be talking or whatever right and so one of the ways that I learned how to manage manage th- that energy and that boredom was work helping other people right and so I think that that's the, th- those were like the seeds of me learning how to teach was just trying to stay out of trouble and uh-huh. you know, use that energy. So I, th- I think so if that- the teacher saw you being helpful, then your talking was permissible. Yes. Instead but of you had here. figured out how to talk. Yes. I know you very well. You're like, how do I get to talk in a way that I don't get in trouble? And this is where you came up with and it worked. Yes. Yeah. And in doing, <laughs> and in doing that, it taught me how to work with students right Uh Uh I remember uh I mean I've always been I've always been some kind of peer um peer counselor something I was always doing something I always had leadership roles in the activities that I did I I even when I played baseball I played first base and first Mm -hmm. base always like it's it's a leadership it's a leadership Mm -hmm. position on Mm -hmm. team you're calling, you know, you're reminding people what to do and you're helping to keep up the energy and, and all of that. So regularly I found myself in situations where I was a leader. Then on top of that, my mom got stomach cancer when I was 10 years old Mm -hmm. and we thought she was going to die. And I have a brother who's only, so, well, let me back up. I have a brother who's 21 months younger than me, but Mm -hmm. even though we're, he's less than two years younger than me. I, you know, in black families, you're the oldest is in charge. And so Mm -hmm. if my mom and a stepfather went away on for a weekend or something like that, like I, or we were there, say we didn't have school, but they had to work. We could hang out all day. And then I would be like, Jabri, come on, like, you know, an hour before, like, let's get together. Like, let's get up. And like, we've been messing around. The house is dirty. Like, let's use this last bit of time to like clean up. Mm-hmm. And he wouldn't want to do that. But I had to make sure that what, however I could to get him in line, because it was going to fall on me. Because even though I was only 21 months older, you I was still 20. the oldest. Yes. And <laughs> I was a girl. And I wanted to ask, go ahead. Tell me about being the girl child and being a woman and, and being black in a family and leadership. 
Oh. (laughs) 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 You know, it's interesting. Even to today, like, there have been multiple times where I have had to rescue my brother. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't, he's never had to rescue me in the same way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't, I always think about, like, I have to have a house. I have to have, like, a job. I have to have income. Mm -hmm. Because how am I, what would be my backup plan? Like, where could I fall? where that has not had to be his saying because mm-hmm. he knows at, at if all else fails, he can come to me mm-hmm. and I'm going to take care of him. And so, and I think like, you know, my family, like a lot of black families, we raise our daughters and we love our sons. And in addition to being the oldest, being the only girl, a lot of that responsibility fell on me. And then there were a lot of different ways that my family made me responsible for Jabri before my mother was sick and after my mother was sick. So she got cancer at when I was 10 and we thought she was going to die. And even though we had like a live-in housekeeper, like I became in many ways, Jabri's like surrogate mom and bared that responsibility for him. Mm-hmm. I remember being at Palomar's and like, you know, a fight broke out. They were like fighting at the park or something and Jabri want to follow the crowd. And I'd be like, no. And even though I'm only a, a year older than him, I mean, two years older than him, mm-hmm. We, he skipped a grade. So we ended up being a grade apart, right? Mm-hmm. He was a grade under me. And so even though I wasn't like, there wasn't a big gap, like I had to be like, no, we don't follow fights because people get shot at fights. That's right. <laughs> like, That's right. Like, no. So they're going right. We're going left and having to take responsibility and guide him mm-hmm. through, through situations like that. And it was like, it was a spoken and an unspoken expectation, expectation. Of, of me. It's circa 1990s, Southern California, Bloods and Crips, Rodney King just happened. You know, the precarity of his mm-hmm. young Black boy life and to be held responsible for that, to really feel the weight of that is huge. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, maybe not feeling the world having the same or carrying the same weight of your nascent development and your precarity, which was also very much hanging in the balance as well, but who was holding that? And I think we, we still do it to black Mm, girls, right? Black girls are made to be responsible for black boys all the time, even if they're not their, their siblings, like uh, this black boy is messing up in class. Hey, go help him. Make sure he understands the material. Like there are a lot of ways when they like sexually are inappropriate with black girls on campus. The girls are the ones who absorb the responsibility. Yeah. Like there are a lot of ways, right? So mm-hmm. I don't think that my situation, even with Mm-mm. my blood brother, mm-hmm. is unique in how black girls are mm-hmm. expected to be in this society. So mm-hmm. that, and then I think the last thing I'll say is mm. when I was, I remember being in high school and being in Symbasis, and you know, I really my what was Symbasis. <laughs> Symbasis is a manhood and womanhood training program, like a rites of passage program. Okay. And we would um, do different things. Like there was a historical rite that we had. So we had to learn African centered history. Uh-huh. To, there was a spiritual rite. And so we had, to, we also went over like academic work, but we also did like a period called separation where we had to there was a physical right so we had to do physical activities and things but we also did separation and that's where the the boys go in their corner with the men and Mm -hmm. learn things and the girls go into their corner with the women and learn things 
mm-hmm. that are were unique to us and things mm-hmm. that you know have those conversations that we needed to have mm-hmm. as we were developing but it was a mentor a mentor based program and and when i was in high school i started mentoring younger younger girls Mm-hmm. So I think I started mentoring at like 16. Mm-hmm. And the dope thing about my mentors is that they didn't, they didn't, there wasn't a lot of like, oh, you're a kid, you can't do this. So we were like, we held board m- meetings and we could challenge them, which really framed how I work with young my people, young yeah. people, right? Mm-hmm. Like an accountability and, and how you you're growing them. I feel like my mentors were conscious that they were growing me to hope to be that person. And that wasn't just you sit and watch, but that you're actively participating and you're getting up and doing speaking engagements and things like that. So there was leadership was always Mm. something that I think was in me that others saw in me Mm -hmm. and others expected of me Mm -hmm. simultaneously. And I love how you're, I was just in a, uh, one of my mentors asked me to speak to her psychology women in psychology course back east via zoom so I sat right here in California (laughs) lecturing to people in New York but sharing and the the conversation was about leadership because that's my shtick I'm into it I want to know about it I want to build it up for all of us and everything and so she wanted me to share my experiences about my leadership and one of the stories I shared was about being 10 years old and taking it upon myself I made everybody's lunches. Initially, I only made my lunch, but then I couldn't understand why if I was making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, I could just get a few more pieces of bread and slather peanut butter on one side and jelly on the other and put them together and toss them in, you know, like I thought. So she described that. She goes, oh, because you were parentified. And I was like, oh, no, no, I wasn't parentified, you know, Mm -hmm. but my parents didn't stop me. My mother always wondered like, what is wrong with her? But she was like, but go ahead because (laughs) (laughs) please go absolutely Wendy baby girl go do that you know she said but when 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 she when we reflect on it and laugh at it now she's like you know I didn't know why you were doing that she said but you just took it upon yourself you would get up early I like to get up early I still do I like to get up early I liked to get up early and read something as a kid that might have been Roots or the autobiography of Malcolm X. I mean, you you know this as a kid you, mm-hmm. that I was reading, me and Jabri used to read a lot of- Temple of My books. Familiar. The Temple of My Familiar is one of my favorite books of all time. Like I keep reading it over and over even now, but I digress. So just to say that, you know, I would get up and read, I'd make a nice breakfast. I'd get up and read, then I'd make my lunch. And I was like, well, I'm the only one up. It's quiet. It's peaceful. I'll just make everybody else's. So my, I could say all that to say that, like, you know, my, the, my, my mentor- you know, sharing the mic with me, if you will, with her class was like, and you were parentified. And I was like, oh, I mean, you know, you can have that. But I know for myself, I wasn't. Mm-hmm. That was me leading. Mm-hmm. I took it upon myself. I saw a need. I did it. It wasn't like a need, need. The lunches were going to, like, if I walked out the kitchen and just didn't do that, my siblings were going to eat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they would have made their own lunch. Somebody, my mom, whomever, right? Depending on the ages and how we were and growing up or whatever. But That was for me, a point of leadership. And I guess what I'm getting at is that the care, I see how you went directly from caring and looking after your brother and that expectation to also having that harness within the context of developing as a young woman, as a girl and young woman within this, you know, Simba Sis program, which I knew what it was, obviously, you know, I knew what it was, but that we need to tell other people what you're talking about, right? This rites of passage program, centering African uh, societal frameworks and uh, Mm -hmm. culture, 
and cultural values and norms for Black children in Pomona, California, where we grew up. So mm-hmm. very much gathered around a number of uh, Black adults who were looking at the stage and state, uh, the status and the experiences of Black children and wanted to do something about it. And that's what they did was come up with the rites of passage program that you benefited from, that yes. then had legacy for you as you developed and also influenced the way that you are and have been as an educator for many years. I know you're not doing that work right now, but it's such a huge part of your identity. You're talking about it. Like you're going to go work in a school tomorrow. (laughs) Do you know, but I know that you're not working with you, but you're, you think in those, those terms, you think in those terms, very much, but you uh, see it as leadership. You've seen the care for your brother and the care for the mentees as leadership. And you see the care for the kids that you've worked with as leadership, not as maybe a Westernized concept in psychology called parentification or adultification, which is problematizing. And uh, I would say in some ways sort of speaking to it as a deficit. Well, you know, and I think part of the issue is that the Western, the Western context is not going to fit for black folks because that we're so um, multifaceted and there's so many layers to our experience. So while I also had all of that leadership, there are ways that I was parentified, right? Yeah. But, yes. But yes. Like, and, and so some of the things that I'm learning right now is how my family didn't teach me how to deal with the emotions mm-hmm. that, it, that came up from the stressors and the trauma of almost losing your mother, That's right. all the, the things that came with that. And mm-hmm. so then that meant that I had to figure out like they gave me the responsibility essentially to figure it out. And when Mm -hmm. I dealt with it with food, Mm -hmm. then I got punished for, Mm -hmm. for doing that. Right. Because that, that wasn't, I wasn't supposed to, it wasn't a healthy way to deal with it. Right. Even though they offered no guidance. Right. And it also maybe showed evidence that they weren't taking care of you. Exactly. It was like this evidence, you know, and when you think about, food and body size and the medical industrial complex and judgment and deficit sort of narratives around black families and black bodies and women's bodies and black women's bodies, the intersection of these pieces become then you're showing something that makes us a problem there. You know, you're a problem. We're a problem. You know, that kind of thing. What do you think? Does that fit for you? Yeah. uh, You see my one woman show, but the last, the the piece bondage when I talk and really Mm -hmm. in bondage, what I want to do is put my family in context because Mm -hmm. we didn't, I don't, they didn't just decide to pick on me because I was fat, right? Like this, this, this came from a place like yeah. this, this, this trauma has a larger story. It's, there's a greater social and systemic um, context that it's, that it sits inside of. And so I wanted to be able to give that. And one of the things I say that my body tells the truth, even though everybody in my family has food issues, my body tells the truth. It airs our dirty laundry out, right? And, you know, black folks, you ain't supposed to to talk about your stuff like that. Mm -hmm, And so it's like my body mm -hmm. is telling, it's exactly what you're saying. My body is telling the secrets that we're not supposed to be talking about or exposing in public. And, you know, similar to somebody who's, um, everybody Mm. got alcohol issues, right? But the the alcoholic that is not a functional drunk is the one that's telling the truth. Yeah, exactly. Or who's, who's, who basically we have to know that in any family or any circle or network that it cannot and will not just live in one person. So whatever the dysfunction is, it, it is spread throughout. Um, and the problem person, we say in family theory that the problem child is the symptom of the family's issue. So I want to switch gears so we can start getting to the work that you've been doing and the power of the work that you've been doing through body. Uh, so we decided to 
call this uh, episode the body is the portal because I you know I got well you remember the day I, I hope you remember that I was I super excited I was like oh, jackpot I just hit on it you know so you had me listen to your podcast the sexy side of sides which we're going to link to in the show notes and it was the episode with the older married couple which was mm-hmm. priceless and precious and amazing and I told you I had my mother listen to it who was a part of that village of people who got to see you as a little girl grow up and she said and that is exactly who she is supposed to be I, you know if she she's I am not surprised by anything that is being said there she is as bold there as she was when she was 12 and we were on the car going to the college fair that time I mean she just went straight back to that like 1990s moment but you began two major initiatives one is uh too much woman for this world, which is part of uh, the one woman show, mm-hmm. right? Where you um, are really laying bare your story through poetry, dance, music, very beautiful. And also very emotional to watch too, but very beautiful. And then also the sexy side of size, which is the podcast that you began with, you have collaborators. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can share that story, but you know, I have known you for more years than I have not known you. And that's like, when I think about it, it's such a blessing. And, you know, we've had like a friendship that's gone through spits and is it spits and starts or what's whatever it's been. It's it's a valley, heaps of valleys and also like lots happening and then not a lot happening. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's part of that organic sort of allowing, you know, like that's the naturalness, I think, of adult relationships. I feel very grateful for the history that we have and also appreciative for the spaces that we've had together. But we grew up together. And so, I, you know, especially when I saw the Too Much Woman for This World, like I knew those stories. And I remember telling like, gosh, I know this. I remember that day when your uncle said that, you know, because there's that part where you have where Jimmy does something in the play, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> you know, and so, or what he says to you. And some of the motivations and all that. But oftentimes, and I was thinking about that when we were, me, when we are went with our friend and, and we saw your, your play, you know, the I, I was like thinking about how the audience doesn't know your story, but you're sharing it and how different it is to sort of be in the space of knowing the story and also seeing the artistic expression of that and the poetry of it. But what I think is interesting is that you've done these two pieces, that they are through the body. They are through your body. And I would like for you to talk with us about why, why and what inspires you to utilize your personal embodiment to start and continue a conversation about the value of love and appreciation of liberation, of abundance, of abundant bodies. Why, what is happening here? Ooh, so, so a lot of things. And I think it, it definitely goes back to that, like your call, like it's in you and you're expected to do it, right? Or your circumstances that denote that you're, you have to do it. And so I grew up a fat black girl that mm-hmm. has been, I always say that my three primary identities are uh, fat, black, and a woman, right? Mm-hmm. Those, and I experienced them almost equal, like mm-hmm. they're mm-hmm. there. And sometimes, or the one I think I've ex- actually experienced the most oppression around is the, the body is around uh, size oppression, but I, but they are the ones that inform how I see the world, how I move through the world, how the world sees me. And, and because of that, like, I've always tried to, you know, what, what I realized is that in my art, so I'm an artist mm-hmm. and in my art is how I work through 
life. Like that's how I work through my, my junk. That's mm-hmm. how I try to figure out what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. I have always been on a quest when I think about it to try mm-hmm. to understand what it meant to be fat, why I was being treated the way I was being treated and how to get free of the junk that was consistently being pushed on me around my body. Right. Okay. I've okay. always been on some, some trage- like on, on a path of that so that I could just exist. Like I, I'm a person who loves, um, I would say my saving grace is that I love um, doing things more than I hate in my body. So I want to have on shorts or a short skirt and a tank top and sandals. And I want to be in the sun. Like I want the freedom. Right. Mm. And so, so I literally need to be free of the oppressiveness of coming down on my body and the strengths that came with that. Right. And so what can you, so can we like slow this down a little bit and like look inside that box? Like what were some of the constraints that came in on you and that were pressed upon you because of your body? How did you experience that? What was that? For you? Um, so one of the things is that my mother, what grew up the fat kid in her family, Mm-hmm. And because of her stuff and her self-hate, she was trying to to save me from having to experience that. Okay. But she did so through an oppressive uh, experience. Uh, and so my mother would like get the, you remember the good housekeeping or mm-hmm. uh, the magazine? Mm-hmm. She would get those every week and they had like a diet of the week or something. So she'd be like, yeah. all right, we're going to try this diet. But like, I remember being young. Listen, we moved from San Diego when I was 10. Mm-hmm. or 11 and she got canceled when I was 10 so like 11 we mm-hmm. moved from San Diego so that meant that this had to be like mm-hmm. it had to start as early as like seven or eight mm-hmm. doing mm-hmm. these like weekly diets or whatever like trying to mm-hmm. figure it out right mm-hmm. um when really you're just I'm just being like <laughs> and what I know now because of Oprah thank goodness <laughs> I didn't, I never did this, but I remember. I was not expecting that last part. I was like, really, Oprah? Oh, <laughs> yeah. I remember okay. watching the Oprah uh-huh. show when I was in high school and her doing an episode around weight and her saying, them saying on the show that if if a child needs to lose weight, the whole house has to go on a diet, that mm. you can't just put that child on a diet, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And my mom, I remember I told you, everybody in my family got food issues and my mother was obsessed. She has her own mm-hmm. huge food stuff that even got magnified after having stomach cancer I remember um so you know there will be outrageous amounts of food in my house of all kinds of food I know your grandmother used to just like lay it out there was some shrimp dish she used to make that I was just like I want to be over when it's made (laughs) (laughs) because it's so good (laughs) I had it one time and then y'all would mention I'm like I would like to come over (laughs) because it's so good but no there you you're being, you're not exaggerating. Like on the kitchen nook, on the counters, there's always something baking, always something about to go in, always something coming out. Never really enough room in the refrigerator to hold all of it. So then I also was like a pressure to eat it before it had to be stored. This was a lot. It just was a lot. Like, and that's at my grandmother's house. Like my mom had her own, like we didn't just have cookie, a, some a thing of cookies and like a thing of chips. We had like, ding-dongs and Twinkies and <laughs> Intamin's crunch cake and maybe yeah. donuts and like three or four different kind of cookies, like l- not lying. Mm-hmm. Uh, the animal cookies, mm-hmm. um, the mother's mm-hmm. animal cookies. Mm-hmm. We have 
her flaky flax that went into the freezer because that's how she likes to eat them. We had <laughs> dose of Oreos and maybe like mm. Chips Ahoy or something, right? Or soft bench. Like literally when we went shopping, like that's how we, we mm-hmm. got food and multiple things of chips and just all the things. I remember the boxes of cereal. In my, in my, in the, in the car, in my grandmother's garage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when I was in college, I would like go home mm-hmm. and I would take boxes. Of I, I remember that. Yeah. And, and it we- was also just, if, can I just say, mm-hmm. like, it was a specialness about y'all, y'all's family <laughs> had like this way of thinking of like, it was almost like a fetishization around food and like how it was prepared and for it to be in a certain particular ways. So that when someone created something or made something, it was you have to enjoy this and appreciate it because so-and-so made it with a special sour cream sauce and they cut the chives just like this. And so it gave it like a specialness and an elevation over just mashed potatoes, you know, or whatever it was that they made it so necessary to like devour and enjoy and luxuriate in it. But then it had this guilt on the other side of it for you. I think it was, I didn't feel that when I was over visiting, nobody said that to me. I know that that wasn't said to Jabri. I was his best friend. Because <laughs> he was family. a boy. And so boys, right. boys can be big. Right. It's but there was that, time. right? For you, it was, and look what you've done. And I remember you would say, why did you make all of this? Legit, I, I remember coming home from college one day and my mom cooked. She couldn't figure out what she wanted to make. So she made a meatloaf, a whole meatloaf meal, right? Which is, and, and she's, it was always meatloaf with like, I think it was turkey meatloaf because I wasn't eating beef then. So turkey meatloaf with um, cream of mushroom soup as the gravy and then whatever corn and mashed potatoes or whatever went with it, right? But then she also made like a whole enchilada meal because she wanted some, she couldn't So decide. two entrees. Two full meals. Two so, full meals, yeah, yeah. Two full, you're like, no, all not the entrees. Yeah. And all the sides. So when mm-hmm. I go in the kitchen, it's like a smorgasbord. So I get some of everything. And then she gets mad at me for having some of everything. everything. And I'm like, but if you couldn't choose. How should I (laughs) choose? And you put it on the table. Yeah, like that doesn't make sense to me. So anyways. So the constriction, the restriction is sort of like this game a little bit of like constriction around like requiring or forcing a discipline, a choice making on you that the family couldn't make for itself. Constriction around you needing to fit within a confine that a woman's body and a woman's appetite and a woman's size should be in, in their frame, though it's not. Mm -hmm. And then also a constriction to, and I guess this relates back to the first thing, to be able to do what they were not able to do, to make choices, to have some the word that comes up is discipline, but I don't like it because I feel like it sort of speaks to like that diet world or whatever, but there's something about there's something about trying to confine something into a limit, but really looking to the child to do it, even though we're not able to do it. And then and, saying and to really, the child, you should be doing this. Because really what they, and this is what is key about what I understood from the Oprah show is that they don't see themselves as part of the problem or part or, or in the solution. It's just friction, mm-hmm. right? It's not because they don't see themselves as connected to the behavior. They're not doing behavior modification across the board that's which right. is what you would need to do so I remember right. like one of my most powerful memories was being like 12 and my mother was like we're gonna 
I want you to do Jenny Craig. And if you lose weight, then I'll take you on a shopping spree. And it was this whole thing, right? She was so excited. I think I came home. Maybe I think I came home from Egypt or something. And she mm-hmm. was just so excited. You're going to do Jenny Craig and you're going to lose weight and did it this whole thing. Yes. You don't just say I came home from Egypt, Kairishi. That's so like. <laughs> and so I'll... we'll come back to that. But part of what we need to talk about is how do we merge this Afrocentrism? Mm-hmm. with these ideas of Western ideals about body and embodiment that are being fed within your family, though your family also had the wherewithal to put you into this program. Your mother took you to Egypt. I think she was part of the trip. Sent so me. like she sent me, she sent me. So like, let's, there's a lot there. Don't you think? And so that's why I was saying that the Western stuff doesn't fit on us because mm-hmm. it's both in, because my same mother mm-hmm. who was extremely destructive and my body, my understanding of my body, my relationship with my body and my self-esteem around my body also was mm-hmm. extremely Im- important in how I was, it was confident. Mm-hmm. Like I remember standing up, like we would do these, my family would get these, instead of going to church, we had a thing called the temple of my aunt that were mm-hmm. like our Sunday meetings. And it was, oh, really, I didn't know that. Uh-huh. it was essentially mm-hmm. like, really, it, it was like a, what do you call it? A Kwanzaa session mm-hmm. on a Sunday. <laughs> tied to talent where you share your talent there's like topics or some you know something they're speaking on mm-hmm. um and there was an expectation especially for my mother that the kids were involved so we always had to have like some kind of report or something mm-hmm. prepared or a talent that we were something had yeah. to be a part of this uh-huh the same mother would wake us up on sunday morning before going to the temple mat to watch tony brown's journal which uh tony brown's is um, famous black man who um journalist who mm-hmm. had like a pretty african um, centered mm-hmm. like talk show yes and and then after we watched tony brown we had to have a conversation about whatever the material was mm-hmm. so it didn't matter that you were 12 if he was talking about black economics my mother would be like what do you think about it and if you were like i don't know she'd be like what do you mean that's your brain if you don't know what you think <laughs> who knows what you think right so that's the kind of like indoctrination <sighs> that I experienced. But mm-hmm. at the Temple Mott, when I would share, I would stand up and I would cover myself. Mm-hmm. And she'd be like, stop that. Put your hands down. If you don't like it, lose it. But you're not going to hide it. Like you're not going to apologize for it. Mm-hmm. Right. And so those things exist. Um, mm, right. And do you think that that's part and parcel of being raised Black in America? Yes. What is that? Ha- mother. Okay. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Because there are things that we are not going to just, unless we're actively anti-racist and actively anti-white supremacist, we're not going to, there are things that are just so embedded because what I hear your mother doing is doing very actively anti-racist, anti-white supremacist, pro-comedic African, Egyptian, you know, pro-black, pro-radical black uh, perspectives in terms of raising you in terms in terms of your your cultural knowledge and your knowledge of yourself as a black girl and black woman and racially but at the same time she's embodied a twiggy notion of a woman and because she was a she was a little fat black girl and that's right up in a family where everybody was tall and thin Mm -hmm. and she was a short fat one and Mm so despite her consciousness around Mm -hmm. that other stuff her her subconscious mm-hmm. her um the junk that she hadn't worked through seeped out yeah and yeah. on to me 
I really appreciate us kind of unpacking that a little bit more, right? Because I feel, well, one, we can tell that you've obviously done work with and for yourself through your art, through I'm sure other venues as well to sort of like really make space and understand like who I am in this, understand who you are in this. But, you know, that is that is deep and com- uh, complex work, very nuanced um, and ongoing. And I'm sure for a lot of people, we could be going as we're talking, it's like going through as a whirlwind and not really unpacking like, well, what does that mean to do? And and even that we've tried to undo some, we, there's still levels and layers here that we will never get to. But I guess one of the things that I'm wondering about and what we talked about when conceiving of you coming on to talk with me today was about the freedom that can be found in our bodies, particularly as our bodies are the site of so much of our oppression. And so you shared a little bit of that as it relates to your family and body weight and size and food and diet and, you know, these pieces, but you've also done so through your work and particularly, well, I would say through your life, because I've known you, um, but through, you know, making that more public through, um, oh, excuse me, making that more public through the sexy side of size and really helping. And I would say also through your your, your, uh, social media of too much woman for this world in terms of sexualizing, uh, making desirous, you know, tempting the public with your body. There's a way in which we go from oppressive constrictive to luxuriating in ourselves and uh, promoting that with other women too, that there's some freedom in that. And I want, I wonder about just kind of talking about that transition. I think the last thing I'll say is people might credit Lizzo and other folks with this sort of vision, but I've, I've known you for a very long time. And I've known you through the struggle of like finding the language to talk about the, this and the, that, and the, you know, all the things. So I'm not saying it's not a race to the, to, to the moon, right? So long as we get there and we're healthy and we're happy, that's great. But I would like for you to really talk about the journey as well. Like the years you've been in this to how do you get to a place where the body is no longer the site of restriction and oppression, but becomes a site of liberation by letting it do exactly what it's going to do. Okay. So uh, first, um, before I go into that, I wanted to say, so that summer when I came home and my mother was like, I want you to do Jenny Craig. So I she put me on Jenny Craig and Jenny Craig, if you don't know this, it's like these little pre-made meals, like, (laughs) and you have to eat six times a day and you have to, you have the three snacks and three meals. You have to take 20 minutes to eat your food, which is, I still eat slow to this day. Um, but 20 minutes to eat your food. And then you have to write about why you ate. What do you mean? I ate cause I it's breakfast. I mean, ate cause I'm hungry, but like, there's always this assumption that people are just like, um, just eating to eat right and everybody that's big is not big because of of food stuff mm-hmm. which we'll get into right and mm-hmm. and I would even say that the what I found out today was mm-hmm. my issue what wasn't about food and then all of the dieting culture that mm-hmm. I was subjected to created a negative relationship and with food with food right not that I have then had to debunk but and you were only seven and eight when that was happening. When it started, yes. Yeah, yes, so it's yes. a type of socialization, creating an antagonistic relationship between you and food that you didn't have until, because like you you kept, you said a few times earlier, you were just being, you were just being, you know, seven, mm-hmm. you know, which is fun age. But then this other thing was attached to it. Like uh, I used to get, well, when, when she put me on Jeannie Craig, 
I would be eating Jenny Craig, but the family didn't change. So they would order, there was this pizza place around the corner from our house. We lived in Ontario then, and it was called Double or Nothing Pizza. So you got two pizzas for the price of one. So like, say they would get like four pizzas. They would get, um, you know, two orders of pizza. So you got four pizzas. So I would be on Jenny Craig at 12, expected to eat like this little <laughs> nasty dish while they were eating pizza. <laughs> like a lot of pizza or they're going to the <laughs> like a lot like, of pizza <laughs> and it and it and and at no point did it make sense to them that maybe that wasn't helpful and so then when I cheat because I'm 12 and you're eating pizza then I'm blamed for not having self-control right it's always put back on 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 the person mm. um okay mm-hmm. so I I have and it's funny that you brought up the thing with Lizzo because, you know, I was talking about body before people were really talking about body. Like a lot of my poems and things go back mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. like 2003, 2000, yeah, 2003, 2004, 2005, where I'm talking about body. I was a fat dancer before, mm-hmm. like I, where I was like the anomaly usually in the class or the dance company that I mm-hmm. was the fat girl that was dancing. Mm-hmm. Um and it just, it, it wasn't happening like that. Um, I remember when you were preparing for college and you wanted to study dance in college. Remember back then you had to prepare a VHS mm-hmm. tape and send it and just how painful that, like one, the trouble to go through and get it done. And to, because at that point we didn't have the iPhones and whatnot that could just record videos so easily. For grad school, and I had to pay oh, for all grad that school. money. Oh, yes, for grad school. For people to videotape it, for mm-hmm. the videotapes to, to mail send them. them. Yes, mm-hmm. and and the application that went along with it. And I think I initially I was going to apply to eleven schools, but by the sixth rejection, I was like, I'm paying literally to be all rejected. this money for them to hurt my feelings. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Mm-hmm. And I forget it, and I went to. Work and I know you home. laugh now, but. As a 20 year old, 20 something year old at the time, you know? No, it was hurtful. This and and actually, and I realized this is part of why I stopped. I applied to the, I want to say the University of Michigan. Mm-hmm. It was either the University of Michigan or Michigan State. And this one this woman called me and she said, Listen, they're not gonna accept you. She said, one, you're, you know, my, you know, I've never been a good student. When I got an MFA, that was my first time ever getting straight A's. I I, my GPA in high school and college was like a 2.67, right? Ironically. So she was just saying your overall GPA is not that great. Not strong enough. Then I didn't come from a traditional dance program. I was a theater major Mm -hmm. at my school. They didn't have traditional dance. So I was a theater major and my emphasis was dance. So even though I was doing dance, if I would have come to from a program that was like just a full blown dance program, Mm -hmm. then it would have made my, my um, application stronger. And she said, but even if they did, let's just say I pushed and we tried to figure out how to get you here and they accepted you. She said, I wouldn't want you to be here because they will break you. This is not the environment. Like they're, they, they, she basically, she was like, they can't see. They can't see. And there's so much that will be connected to your body and -hmm. they'll break your spirit. And she said, I wouldn't want you to do that. She said, you should check out Temple or some other schools. And Temple was one of the schools I was going to apply to, but but by, by that point, like, I think they had a later application deadline. And by that point, I'd already been, ex- been denied by like five or six schools. Mm-hmm. And I, and I, I felt like what she was saying 
because I had gone to even in-person um, interviews okay. where I you had to dance for them. Mm-hmm. So some were videotaped and sent out, but some were, I think I went to UC Irvine's and I went to um, CalArts mm-hmm. in person. And I just felt like I was going to consistently, that all they were going to see was fat. It didn't yeah. matter. And it was just going to keep lashing at you. Yep. And, and so I was like, you know, forget this in my truth. So the other thing about my leadership is that I'm an Aries and I'm, and, and because, so I was blessed with the ability to push, right. Yeah. Uh, Which I I have learned to do less of these days, but I was like, okay, so there, this is one way to do it. And maybe school is not the way, or maybe I haven't figured Mm -hmm. it out yet, but there's another Mm -hmm. way. So I'm not going to, so this ain't my route. Okay. I'm gonna pave the way for me to get there. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. And so later on, I ended up going, moving to Oakland, still having a lot of doing about a lot of body positive work. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when mm-hmm. I was at Cal Poly Pomona, Too Much Woman for This World actually started as a workshop that I put on at Cal Poly and then at some lead, at some um, student leadership conferences for the students around body positivity. A big piece of this, um, a theme that's coming through for me with this podcast is the witnessing of thoughts and ideas that take at least five years to gestate before they manifest in the world. And so for you to say, I know that's even more than the five-year period, but for you to say that is so important because let's just give the audience a sense of time. When you say that workshop, that was about what? It was between 2000 and 2002. And when you I, I know too much women for this world came out before I saw it, but when was its first production? So let's say that I, I did the the workshop 2001, 2002, something like that. Then I, I did it a a couple of more times. Like when I went to the university of Laverne Mm -hmm. and then when I went, so then I got into grad school in Mm -hmm. San Francisco. That's right. Um, So this was my kind of like, you know, backdoor kind of way or or different Mm -hmm. path. Mm -hmm. I'll say um, and my advisor ended up being a dance, a, oh. a dancer choreographer who had okay. her own dance company. Right. Okay. So I went to, I started at new college and then the program moved to, uh, California Institute of Integral Studies. Okay. And it was a master's in fine arts, um, around creative inquiry and mm-hmm. with creative inquiry, you, it, it, it allows space for you as an artist, mm-hmm. instead of them telling you what your histories are and what informs your art for you to construct all the pieces that, Pull, you pull into your art and, mm-hmm. and, and research that. And in addition to our other classes, I could figure out what, what my expertise was, like what I wanted to pull in. Mm-hmm. And so I had been thinking, you know, a lot of my friends were poets and going to colleges and universities and performing, mm-hmm. but I didn't want to go as just another poet. I didn't want to do one. My stuff has to be way more substantial than that. And I didn't want to just be the next thing, right? So I was like, I'm going to do a show because at the same time, remember I was performing, I was performing as a poet. I was performing as a dancer and people would come up to me. I was in dance classes and people would come up to me. I'd have all kinds of people, women, men, big folks coming to me in tears and trying to figure out like, how do they're so inspired and how do they get what I had? Right. And And what did you have? uh, The confidence. Right. So remember my mom was like, you better stand up here and Mm -hmm. and own this space and not apologize for yourself. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I'm trying to figure out all this body and unpack all this body stuff and make sense of it that my family gave me and my mother gave me. But I also had the confidence from her, from Simba Sis, 
from all of these places that were like giving me leadership leadership opportunities to stand up and speak and to own space and be confident in what I said or whatever. So what they were seeing, Sister Dasa, my one of my first um my first dance company was with Sister Dasa, who was one of my mentors from Simba, mm-hmm. also in Aries. And she saw me dancing and she was like, oh, you coming to work with me. And she had mm-hmm. me doing fire dance and like also. Mm-hmm. So the development of me as a performer translated into, it, it didn't matter what I was doing. So when they mm-hmm. saw me, they were like, how are you unapologetically in your body and owning space, right? And they wanted to know how to do that. They wanted to, so I said, I'm a right a piece this was going to be my um my thesis for for my mfa program okay i'm going to write a piece and i'm going to i'm going to talk about how my life growing up fat and how i developed self-esteem and mm. the piece that i use the title i use was too much woman for this world mm. that came from those workshops right mm-hmm. and all of that was about self-esteem building and and mm. body image that's when i researched and that is how i even found out about twiggy I didn't know about that. Mm-hmm. So I had been operating under the oppression of T- Twiggy without even knowing who she was. Right. And when was, when were you in your MFA program working on this thesis? 2008. So yeah, like, like uh, six, seven years. All I have to say is that I am not wrong. Mm-hmm. And a good Leo does not give up being right. <laughs> Touche, ole. Oh, wow. Right. You're right. Right. And so how do you go from, so can I just tell you a, revel, uh, mm-hmm. a, a reflection I'm having? Maybe it's a revelation. I don't know what it is, but your mother basically created the schizophrenia that lives in our society and you're rearing so that in some ways, I don't want to say that you would be unfazed, but you are pre- particularly prepared to go do it anyway. Mm-hmm. Oh, she it's has the dichotomy of both of those things. She raised you with both from very early. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this to your body. Get it. Did, 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 did. Don't you hide it. Don't you be ashamed of it. You, it's yours. You own it. You don't like it. Do something about it. But that's you. Show it. And if that is not what the heck you're doing right now, I don't know what is. I would even add a third thing because my All mother right, also it. was resistant, right? Like she was a such a... My uh, she always tells a story, or she used to tell the story where um, mm-hmm. my grandmother, my mother was being rebellious. You know, mm-hmm. she was like mm-hmm. they were supposed to be wearing dresses. She was wearing like um, Chuck Taylors, a white <laughs> t-shirt and jeans. Boy, she, she was bad. <laughs> she used to like shank. She used to shank white folks with um, picks. Boy. okay. With, um, the the black power fist because <laughs> they had afros. <laughs> that was, where was, was she doing that? Just in public? In Just in at the store? At, like, at like, um, what are those? At like Simon's or Fremont, um, like at schools in Oakland. Oh, I mean, at school, like, she was doing that with the hair pick. She was poking people with it. into like race fights. In, in oh, Fremont. I see, I see, I see, I see. Yeah. But she was, she was a bad, but so, um, and she was rebellious. <laughs> like that part of her, that, that Sagittarius mm-hmm. was like, why? What, what is like, what for? I'm gonna call you, I'm gonna call bullshit on these rules. They're stupid. And what, what, what why can't I wear pants? Right. She was that person. And my, uh, she wanted to paint her room and she wanted to paint her room black. And my grandmother begged her. She was like, Didi, please. <laughs> Your grandmother kind of knew she couldn't make her stop. She was like, pick any color, but black, please. My, my poor grandmother, she wasn't ready. And then, so my mom picked the darkest 
most gaudy blue you could you could picture you probably don't remember this but in that um middle room in my grandmother's house where me and Jerry used to sleep it was painted over but there are still pieces on the wall you could see of that dark <laughs> dark blue that was that her my room. mom oh yeah. you all slept in her womb uh facts right <laughs> <laughs> so karishi tell us about the instagram feed okay <laughs> tell yeah. me about not only the so you do a few things there that i've noticed i've been studying you so one of the things because <laughs> i'm a good researcher but seriously one of the things you do is that you feature other people so other women who are in 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 a, in a fulfilled embodiment is how i'll say like they are loving themselves up they are lotioned and coconut oiled and just in my story yep in, in the story, story, in your story, right? Then there'll be like 30 of these things. I mean, is there a limit on how many you can put in the story? That's just because I'm like an obsessive compulsive. You are. So there's like, there's tons is all I'm trying to say. Like, I'm like, they're the smallest little lines at the top that, you know, I can't only but do like one story at a time because I really don't know how to use any of this social media. Like I'm really old in a weird way, <laughs> though I'm younger than you. And that's what's strange. So you do that. But then there's also parts where it's like, so that's in the stories, but the post are you and your body overflowing like in joyful spaces? Like it's not over, it's usually mostly naked. So half the time you don't want any clothes on. So what you said earlier is there, but there's also this way in which there's almost a decadence in which you're engaging your body. Like it's like your dessert. It's, uh -huh. do you know what I'm getting at? Like, it's so like, you're like, yes, I'm doing it on purpose. Tell <laughs> us about these choices. Tell us about the display. Tell us about who is photography, you know, who's doing the photography here? Um, what's going on? Okay. <laughs> so much. So first with the, Yes, with it is so much. It's so much. So I say when so when I say too much woman for this world, it, it it's it, it's probably like a, a double entendre or a triple entendre or whatever, because it's not simply about being being big, right? What I realized, and I, I told my director this when I was working. So I, I wrote Too Much Woman for This World. It started in 2008 and I finished it, I think, um, at, at the end of 2009 or 2010. And that took me a couple more years, I think, to get a director slash dramaturg to help me like suss out the story, really work on the story. So it's been through multiple iterations since then. But I told her, I, I used to think that my issue was just around food. And then I went to, I worked at Girls Inc. Ugh, I worked at Girls Inc. And we had to do a project. And it was something about like, we had to put paint on a plate, right? So like several different colors and we had to put it on a plate and then take that to our tables and then paint from there. Well, everybody else's has this nice, like probably how your plate look, have like a drop here. And a drop I don't appreciate here. the stereotyping about <laughs> probably how my plate would look, by the way. Well, I just know that it would be a stark contrast to mine. <laughs> it was nice and orderly, but you know, a drop, a drop, because you can always go back and get more, more paint, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And 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 everybody else, I looked up, and everybody else's plates were like this, and I got all of the yellow and all of the blue, and they're like merging, like it's literally my plate is covered in paint because I just got so much, and it was that moment I was like, oh, this looks like my plate when I go to a smorgasbord, like. I'm only going to go once, but I'm going to get a big All the things. I'm yeah. going to get what, yeah. So what is that? Is that supposed to be that you're too much? So yes, that what I realized is I like, I like a lot. Yeah. So it's not simply about food mm -hmm. and it's not just about my body that I actually like a lot. 
I like a lot of sex. I like a lot of adventure. Like I like a lot. I'm going to post. Do you like a lot? A lot. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I'm going to post all those things on my story. I know. Yeah. Camila was like, nobody's told you that that's too much. She said, I'm only going to get through like three or four of them. And I can't look at all of them. Why do you keep posting so much? Why aren't you strategic? It was this whole thing. But but I'm like, I like, and I like, and I like. So so when I say too much woman for this world, Mm -hmm. what I started to realize is that it was much bigger than just my body. It was all the different ways that I was told I was too much. I talked too much. I was too loud. I was too happy. I was too boisterous. I was too messy, too junky. I talked too much in class. I remember when I had to leave honors my last semester at, at Pomona High, and went into a college prep class and they were like, why do you keep answering all the questions? And I was like, in honors classes, we talk, what are you talking about? But I, I always did too much. There was too much of me in all the different forms of who I am. So there's, what I started to realize is that there was an internal attraction to a lot. Right. Mm-hmm. So anyways, when, and, and thinking about the play, mm-hmm. I wanted to, in my marketing plan, I was trying to come up with ways to uh, build an audience to support the play. And so I came up with Sexy Side of Size and I thought it was just going to be about me talking to people about sex because, you know, one of the things that's really big for me, my favorite topic really probably is sex, is sex, right? You know, people are always like, I can't believe you're talking about that or they respond to me because I'm a woman talking about it or whatever. And so I wanted to do that and it ended up evolving into this other thing but with sexy side of size, I wanted to make sure, like I remember when I was in when I was working at Cal Poly and at Laverne, I did what's Eve Inler's Eve Inler's um, the vagina monologues. Thank you, the vagina monologues. And I remember going home and having conversations with everybody in my life about their vaginas. Family, you did everybody. Yeah, yes, my my mother, my grandmother, everybody. And so I remember asking my mother um, if she had ever had an orgasm, and she was like. <laughs> I don't know. Oh no. I think so. And I was like, no. And she was was in her 40s. And I was Mm -hmm. like, and so what do you think happens for you when you think about this liberation that you're finding inside of a body that your mother tried to contain, that your family tried to contain, and that she was not able to access the liberation that you have found through your sexuality and through your sexuality in this body? Like, I think there's some things that are happening in there that I wonder if you've thought about or you know if you have any if you have any thoughts about that like how that came to be well one I I think I think what is really key and I think that this is also something for black folks and and more more people might experience it but I really see it with black women and that is that like my mother's resistance and who she was in her life gave uh, my grandmother's sacrifices allowed my mother to be that right Right, right. And then my mother's sacrifices allow yes. me to be my son. Mm-hmm. And then that allows me to have conversations with my grandmother. Ah, so today. it circles back. Yes. Around liberation and, and conversations around sex. Present. And so there's a way that, that all of those things that they went through have allowed me. It's not simply just that I, I have this in me, but that all of those things that they could not do or they didn't do or didn't understand or whatever have gotten me to the place where I actually have access to the information and the boldness to do it, right? So my mother was bold when it came to certain things, 
but she wasn't bold around her body. Like she didn't know how to resist that. Mm -hmm. She wasn't bold Mm -hmm. around her sexuality. She didn't know how to resist that, Mm -hmm. but she gave me resistance. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to take her resistance and build on it. And harness it in this particular way. Now it is serving this function, this Um, liberation, because she was liberating in other ways. Yes, but not in her. Yeah, she thought she thought like giving head was like the worst thing that you could like. That was the <laughs> the most sinful thing <laughs> a woman could do. And I was like, you have boring sex, but I don't even think she enjoyed sex. Whatever. But so, anyways, I so so my mother was a big inspiration for me starting the sexy side of size because mm. I wanted because I realized how much women and you know just having relationships with women and talking mm-hmm. how much women don't own their sexuality that's right they don't own their bodies they're they're disconnected from pleasure and I'm always like the people they blame me for like bringing it out in them or like I'm mm-hmm. too wild or but mm-hmm. I, you know we've been taught not to be wildish nature women there's a book by uh Clarissa Estes uh mm-hmm. women who run with the wolves mm-hmm. and I think that women function a lot of times in those archetypes of yeah. don't can't and mm-hmm. I'm like why that the, my mother's resistance yes. makes me go why Right. Well, what happens if we do that? Because mm-hmm. that that is if you how are you going to be a leader in the world and you can't even lead? Well, see, and I feel like that is what's interesting, because I don't know that people necessarily connect their leadership journey with their experience of freedom of body. And I actually think that some, you know, with another colleague that I interviewed, we talked about authenticity and inauthenticity and how those work to frame or limit a sense of freedom being, and that you can't, and and leading, I should say, and that your effectiveness and your capacity to lead are as expansive as your ability to be your authentic self. Mm -hmm. And so there are many women who have these prominent leadership roles, you know, who are repressed, repressed, Mm -hmm repressed, you know, who are starving their bodies of pleasure, of food, which is of affection. Mm -hmm. And so how do we imagine, you know, and this gets into like these ways in which we think about leadership in more expansive ways where whole woman can be present and be in this space, right? And so I feel like there is this access point, you've come through it through, you know, body positivity, but when you and I were talking and coming, I was wanting you to come and and speak with folks is because I believe that this is a dimension we've not really talked about in the context of leadership in the world, which is the body as being the portal, like the full embodiment, the full authentic acceptance of the self and the uh, satisfaction of that body and the, the care for that body to be necessary, to necessitate good leadership. I did Sexy Side of Size to help build my audience. But when I once I got into it, I realized that it was taking on a completely different life, right? So it wasn't really to build up the audience for too much women for this world. And at the same time, I think I launched both of them in 2018, in fall 2018. And at the same time, um, I launched um, my Instagram page, Too Much Woman for This World. And I really focus on uh, self-esteem and body image. I am provocative and I wanted to show because I also want women to be unapologetically themselves, right? I also want to challenge the idea of what we can show. And who said that fat can't be, who said that it can't be beautiful or like who determines what's sexy and, and what has to be hidden and not hidden and like 
all of these different things. Like, and, and I'm very clear that me, me being naked on Instagram is different than somebody who's 120 pounds yes. being naked on Instagram, right? Tell like, me why. I am pushing to make space for that. Mm-hmm. Hers is acceptable, right? There are, she fits into a particular kind of beauty, politic and fantasy mm-hmm. and acceptability, right? Fat women are told to cover up, mm-hmm. to shroud, to hide, to not take up space. Mm-hmm. And so there is a way that I am saying you have, it's in your face. And not only is it in your face, it's in your face joyfully. And not only is it joyfully in your face, it's sexy in your face. It's unapologetic in your face. And that's like, and sometimes I, um, my friend Jamel, t- he's like, I'm gonna just start calling you naked. Cause every time <laughs> you're naked on my feet. <laughs> He's always giving me, giving me, um, yeah. about it, right? mm-hmm. but I did a post recently where I was like, you know, people get mad at me for posting all these like boudoir pictures, mm-hmm. but really I, I, sometimes I post because I'm feeling myself and that's how I'm, 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 I'm being right. Like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm in it. That's where I, how I am. And I'm like, Ooh, y'all just need some of this, this energy. But sometimes <laughs> I post cause I'm struggling with my body mm-hmm. because I, I'm, I'm having a hard time accepting what's in front of me. Mm-hmm. And so one of my tactics is to put it out there. Mm-hmm. And once it's out there, it's out of my head. And it's I have in to, the world. I have to develop a different relationship with it. Mm-hmm. I have to like figure out to choose in or choose out. Right. Mm-hmm. So you like force it, the issue with yourself. I, yep, I do. It's out there. And that some of it is how we see ourselves and not like, just because we see ourselves that way doesn't mean it's real. Mm-hmm. Or it's, I guess it's real for me, but it doesn't mean that it's right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so doing that. And so I, I, I talk about, I show those pictures and then I started a too much woman for this world podcast mm-hmm. that's specifically okay. about big women. I didn't know um, that. Okay. Yeah. That's specifically about big women to support because too much women for, I mean, sexy side of size didn't do what I thought it was going to do. Because that was just a conversation that needed to happen. It seemed that people just wanted to have that conversation. So you had, and isn't that funny? Like we may have these ideas about the things we want to uh, create and manifest and they take on the life of what is needed because sometimes we're feeling a leadership vacuum in a different way than we thought we were. Mm-hmm. When we got on today, you were talking about this uh, post that you wrote that you shared and you said, Wendy, I realized I wasn't, Okay. So listen, okay, go ahead. So this is interesting in terms of leadership, right? And this Mm -hmm. is why it's just so dope to have like powerful black women around you and to be, um, and to listen, to be able to listen, Mm -hmm. to, to move to Houston. Uh, okay. I know Houston is next, but I just couldn't see me leaving, leaving Oakland. And they were like, Oh really? You're too connected. Cool. Let's disrupt (laughs) all these connections (laughs) and make you so uncomfortable. So you have to go to Houston, right? And not Mm -hmm. knowing, not having a consciousness was what was going to leave waiting for me on the other side. So I get to fast forward to 2020, I get to Houston and I get connected to, um, a spiritual godmother. My, my spiritual godmother was like, you, you should really consider doing therapy. So I was like, all right. And I was like, "Mm, I don't know, but I was stuck. I was feeling like, you know, maybe there's something I, I couldn't figure out how to become the, I was already good and I couldn't figure out how to get great. And I felt, and so what I realized is that I needed the therapist to help me do some work so that I could become great. And so I got this therapist and she's a dope black woman. And um, she was like, oh, Kyrie, you have all this stuff with your body, 
Mm. Why don't you go? Because I'm also like gaining weight and, you know, I was dealing with all this stuff with my body. Mm-hmm. She was like, why don't you go to this doctor named Dr. Tia? Um, she's a gynecologist here in, in, in Houston, which mm-hmm. I find out later that my godmother goes to Dr. Tia, right? Like oh, so okay. I'm in this kind of like little network. So Dr. Tia orders a test. At the same time, I'm doing all this work emotionally with my therapist. And one of the things that my therapist really underscores for me is that my mom didn't understand how she was uh, not showing up for me right in human form. But you don't just lead, like leadership is not just in an embodied or a physical space that my mother sees now in her spirit, in her spiritual form, she understands what she wasn't doing right. I I just want to say that that is not just me. It wasn't just me leading her or me having to take that leadership that she now in her new form is doing that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So Mm -hmm. I, I do this test that Dr. Tia advises. Yes. And mm-hmm. it's called the Dutch complete. And she looks at my hormones and stuff. And I have been thinking, I have lymphedema on mm-hmm. um, one on my right side. And it's uh, like this, your lymphatic system is messed up and, um, and you have all this swelling. Okay. And so I've been working for, I've been going to exercise, trying to figure out, I've been fasting and mm-hmm. cleansing and doing all these things to try to figure out um, how to solve that. And I, I came across this word called lipedema mm-hmm. and I kind of thought I had lipedema, but then I was, it was, I didn't realize you could have both. Okay. And so I was like, once I looked at it, I was like, no, but I do have this lymphedema on my right side. So maybe it's just mm-hmm. lymphedema. Right. And, and dealing with all the shame and all the junk around that. And so then I do this test with Dr. T and we, we met last week to go over the results. Mm-hmm. And I told her because I saw this woman's Instagram post. Mm-hmm. And she said, I have lymph, lipedema and lymphedema. Okay. And I'm learning to love my body and all this stuff. Right. And I was like, so you can have both. Okay. So in what's my the meat, difference? What's lipedema? So I was telling Dr. T and when we were going on my, my results, I was like, I think I have lipedema and lymphedema. And she was like, I do too. And she said, oh. she had a, a client, a patient with that had both and our test results mirror one another mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and so then she ordered some more labs but then the, I did a deep dive into lipedema mm-hmm. and lipedema is a fat disorder mm. that everybody because there's not a lot of a lot it's not widely known in the medical community and so mm. they dismiss it as being your fat mm. and it largely impacts women and it largely impacts us um, there's a hormonal component so it largely impacts us during major hormonal shifts Mm-hmm. So you'll see a huge weight gain during the adolescence. Kids. Yep. Mm-hmm. And when you have babies uh-huh. and when you're perimenopausal, right? Uh-huh. So my first big one was when I went through puberty, mm-hmm. right? And, 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 you know, and I used to think this all the time, like I'm, I'm extremely active. I'm, I'm playing sports. I'm in marching band. Mm-hmm. I'm mostly eating at my grandmother's house and, you know, her favorite food, her favorite dish was like, salmon croquettes rice and corn or something some <laughs> vegetable and, and rice or something right like that <laughs> mm-hmm. that was largely what I was eating mm-hmm. what I was I wasn't overeating at at um right. lunch at high school mm-hmm. I ate like a bean burrito a bag of onions and maybe no a- more than any other teenager right but no matter what I was doing mm-hmm. I was consistently big mm. And even right now, like um, I'm on an anti-inflammatory, mm-hmm. um, healthy eating program to lose weight. 
and and not really making in like I'm only drinking alkaline water and like not making any big shifts and so Hmm. when I started to do a deep dive in lipedema it's like stubborn fat cells if you look at pictures of it you'll see women who are shaped just like I'm shaped I'm gonna look it up that look just like my body it's the fat that fat is resistant to diet and exercise Mm. and so no matter what happens it doesn't matter what you do there's not a behavioral response to this they have to like, there's all these other things they have to do to it, including a uh, liposuction, right? Mm-hmm. So, but if they would have, and lipedema can often lead to lymphedema. I so see. I've had it probably since all I was, life. yes, most of my life, right? And, and because everybody has weight bias, mm. they just dismissed it as being fat. And behavioral and blaming you for a behavior that they saw as laziness not exercising and overeating as opposed to the body is having a biological there's a biological thing happening in terms of the body's processing what it's doing with fat cells but it's actually like a disease like it's a disease mm-hmm. and they mm-hmm. say like it's the disease called fat and they just dismiss the it as you being fat and they just dismiss it as you being fat and so I what I'm also clear about how my leadership is showing up that I just went on this huge journey mm-hmm. to uncover what is going on in my body uh-huh. and so that I can start dealing with it finally really talking about freedom right like yeah. like talk about liberation yes. like to, to know and to be able to work towards it is huge and mm-hmm. then to be able to share it with people around me and in my family especially my niece tell me about the tears <laughs> and let them come <laughs> so that she doesn't have to go through what That's I right. went through so That's she right. doesn't have to endure the criticism mm-hmm. and the, the blame and the cycles of drama yeah. so that a problem is not created in her that doesn't belong to her, that she doesn't have to be 46 and try to solve and figure out and undo things that were weaved into her. Mm. That, that's also a way that I'm leading is by making that's, sure that's right. that they don't have to deal with the same crap. Yeah let's just breathe into it right now and not rush through it Mm. and how painful it is to have to be the learner of that lesson and the teacher but perhaps also gratifying and I feel like that's a theme for you you know you talked about doing that for your brother you talked about doing that for your mentees and your students and even for your grandmother and your mother, as you help them to find their bodies and their pleasure in their bodies, but also to help your nieces to find the normalcy of who they are, that they're not wrong. Yeah. Hmm. Especially because Abriana is, you know, hmm. she's in that pubescent age right now. So her body is going still to has some change. Years. Mm-hmm. Yes. But she, Esme looks just like you and your little baby girl. And she's just chunky and sweet, but, and I feel like that's the thing though, Kairishi, right? And I, you know, that particularly with body size and weight and fatness, that there is a judgment and there is a sense, like, it's almost like a moral judgment on someone's capacity to manage themselves and their body. We're mm-hmm. saying that you're a wrong person because you can't control yourself. So when I, when, you know, when we're making this distinction between behavioral and biological, it's kind of what I'm getting at. You, you know, you get, you made yourself this way. 
So you deal with it. It's on you. And so as opposed to being led to look for medical explanations, physical explanations for why the body and not to blame someone. And perhaps just as a society, what if we just put the blame finger down and sought understanding? We could have been here a lot earlier, I guess is what I'm getting at. And I, and I'm not somebody who doesn't go to the doctor. I know you've gone to the doctor a lot and I know that they've dismissed meaningful and uh, actual concerns you've had because they couldn't see past your body. Everything. When you're fat, everything is because you're fat. Mm-hmm. That is the easy answer for everything. It is not easy. why are you fat? Nobody ever asked the question. I remember when you went for something and they started asking about diabetes and pancreatic something and you were like, I'm here because of this. <laughs> I forget what it was, but you, and you were much younger, about in your thirties or so at the time. Mm-hmm. You said when, not, when you're a fat black woman, you have to advocate for yourself. So you're, you're, you have to leave because you have to advocate for yourself and you have to press for that. But people seeing you as a leader is a whole other thing. So do people see it? And do you think that people would see it differently if you were a fat white woman? I don't know. I know I was looking at the, um, mm-hmm. but I think that you, there are multiple things, right? Mm-hmm. So um, we know black women have far worse health care yep. than a, a black woman with a degree is going to receive far worse health care than a white woman with a uh, high school ed- education, right? Yes. yes. We know that that, that, can, that bias, that implicit bias and all of that consistently happens in the medical field with mm-hmm. black women, with uh, their birthing, all, all of the things the fibroids, like whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. Like there is a, you know, all of that, like racist belief uh, um, in our ability to ho- take pain and mm-hmm. um, all of all of the stuff, right? So we we know that. So if I was a, just a black woman and that was smaller, I'm still going to have poor health care, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I'd still have to advocate and push. And there are so many stories out there. You really get to hear with women talking about their fibroid story, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that it's, it's mishandled and hysterectomies are given to them, right? Or whatever. When women are pregnant and and birthing, that's why some there's such such a push for Black women to have home births because uh-huh. of the way, uh huh, because mm-hmm. of the way that they've experienced racism um, in in the medical field. So I think if I was just being a Black woman, I, it's already bad, right? And then when you add fat on top of that, mm-hmm. it's it's like a double whammy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think in in the same hand, the white being a white woman is going to lessen your your um the discrimination that you're going to get. But when you add fat on top of that, uh-huh. then it's going to make it more. So mm-hmm. if I was a, fi- a fat white woman, I'd probably receive better health care, but still not optimal because of the fat bias. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a woman who started the lymphedema project. Okay. I mean, lipedema project. Okay. And she's, and you know, a lot of the women that she did, a, she did a documentary and a lot of the women that she talked about, she interviewed were white women. Mm-hmm. And one of the biggest places, one of the places that has done the most research for lipedema is Germany, right? Mm-hmm. And that's like white capital. Um, so, <laughs> so, there, so it's, I, I think that it, there's a way, but those women still have the same stories about like not mm-hmm. being taken serious, mm-hmm. doctors dismissing it. You just need to lose weight. You're mm-hmm. not doing enough. What are you eating? Like, you know, they, they have, those women have similar stories right? and they found their way into that documentary and she right. found her way into uh, um, helping to figure out um, what lipedema was and mm-hmm. to start the, um, what she, it was actually diagnosed by these white guys, these white doctors in the 1940s. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but she started the lymphedema project, right? Like there are resources and things that she's had access to that she's a professor, but Mm -hmm. I'm, but I think that it's more than just her being a professor. So Mm -hmm. we know that race implicates everything in this country. So I would, so yeah. Okay. I think it's nuanced and the answer is yes. With this podcast, there is this focus and attention to thinking about those who are coming behind us, thinking about like what, you know, what the future will hold. Um, so who's coming behind us? And so I'm wondering if you, you know, what speaking to your younger self or even imagining the mentees and, or, you know, that you work with people who seek your support and your guidance, what words of advice or wisdom would you impart as they face into their own leadership journey? And particularly thinking about the leadership through their own personal embodiment, whatever that may be. You know, when I was talking to Dr. Tia last week and I was mm-hmm. crying and I was mm-hmm. just like, Cause I just feel like I've been duped. I'm like, I've yeah. been like literally my whole life. Like bamboozled, led astray. we do it. <laughs> we land on Plymouth Rock. Landed on us. That's right. <laughs> Jenny Craig landed on us. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so she was championing me for listening to my voice. She did. And she said, you knew, she said, you told me, she said, our very first meeting, you said something is going on in my body. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know if you know this, but I was going to, mm. I was going to get um, the gastric sleeve. You I told me that I made the plan and I was going to get the gastric sleeve. And I remember my therapist being like, um, well, Kairishi, if food is not your issue, how is what, that going to help? going to help. Yeah. Right. And because I was like, that's oh. really not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I know, but still, but what I kept saying was there's something going on in my body. And I don't know, because I don't just have lymph- lymphedema. Like mm-hmm. I don't just have my leg is not just swollen for nothing. Like there is a something. So we talk about leadership and my mm-hmm. leadership and my, yeah. and mm-hmm. my subconscious knowing mm-hmm. was to build a wall of protection and because they, and, and I took on like a grandma body, right? Like I took on like, that's like, that's how my body is made. And I, I took that on. Mm-hmm. Um, that is so and, powerful. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so, and, um, but anyway, so I, and so this has literally been an uncovering, right? Mm-hmm. But it's an uncovering because I have been diligent about going back to my own knowing. So I was like, nah, mm-hmm. I had decided not to get the surgery and to do another program that was going to, the, the program I'm doing, they detox your body, they alkaline your body, they build up your gut health and they balance your hormones. Mm-hmm. And I picked it because they balance your hormones. Cause mm-hmm. I was like, remember she had said there's something going on with your hormones Mm -hmm. and I'm like there's there's something else here Mm because I know what I eat in the day I know what I do in a day like I should not be gaining weight like I should not I'm not doing anything to sustain the the body that I I'm I'm carrying right um it doesn't match the math ain't (laughs) mathing the math ain't (laughs) mathing They said that on this TV show this week. <laughs> I started cracking up. She said, I got to put that on Twitter. You know, I used to do these programs for young people and it was a leadership development program. And people thought that I was going to do like, you need to have these skills and these skills. But really what I wanted to impose upon the girls, it was an adolescent girl program, was to focus on that leadership begins with leadership of self. That containing, understanding who you are, what you're about, what you need, and managing and taking care of that or knowing how to garner those resources to do that, that is your job. And so I hear that very loudly. And it sounds like, because we do this with women and girls, we take us off of that path. 
but it sounds like that you with Dr. Tia was mm -hmm. pressing you to really appreciate about what you've been doing is that you kept getting back here to center and going forward with, I have a question about what's happening in my body. I'm asking, but I've always had this sense about this and me that it wasn't about my own behavior that had my body in this place, but rather that there may be maybe something happening in my body that's causing my body to be this way. You know, I literally have a village of women around me mm. who pour into me consistently, who hold me accountable, mm -hmm. who build me up and do mm -hmm. all of that work. Mm. Well, I get to be one and I'm excited about that too. <laughs> that this body that you created, that it did take care of you. Like for all intent and purpose, it worked, you know, had other challenges and consequences, but you're here. I did a, a post yesterday. Um, it's a very provocative post on my Instagram, but I talk about the body, my body. And I'm like, you know, it's been a, it's been a emotionally tumultuous week. And I said, you know, I have like a, an extremely complicated relationship with my body, but also this body is the same body that has allowed me to like yes. move right. and to, to travel and yeah. do and, and play sports and dance and dance on stages in different countries around the world and move and swim. And like, there's so much that this body has, has allowed me to do. And so that post was really just affirming it. Like no matter what the complicated, what, no matter what the ex junk is at the heart of it this body has 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 let me live right and not just uh, literally but figuratively like I've lived I've lived a life and I've gone places and I've been able to do things with the support of this body that That's exactly I exactly right that that journey couldn't like I wouldn't be Kairishi not without this Kairishi not without it not yep that's right and so that to give love to mm -hmm. extend love to this body that it did what it was supposed to do it you're here mm -hmm. oh my friend okay last question <laughs> and then we will we'll pause what are you up to what are you doing what do people what do you want people to know that you're into what's going on this um what's happening i'm going back to south africa in august to be a part of um it's called her story uh women's conference i mean a, a women's theater festival and so I'll be performing too much woman for this world. Oh my gosh. And, and there is a, um, there are like two things that I need to do to too much woman for this world for it to be like complete. Okay. And, and between now and then I'm going to add those two things so that it'll be a complete work. Get all of that done with too much woman for this world. I want to like start performing it. So putting it, my initial plan was to put it in like um, different festivals French festivals around the country and in the mm -hmm. world Co with COVID dying down, okay. like the ability to like move differently. And a lot of things are in person again. Okay. So just doing that and really building up. Um, and, and how and can people learn about the shows and things that you'll be doing? It sounds like you have some that you know is going to happen in South Africa and that there likely will be more dates and things and uh, events that will be happening throughout 2022, 2023. So they can find me two ways. Um, okay. You can go to immediately to um, my Instagram page okay. at too much woman for this world. And outside of that, you can reach me on my website, which is the body project LLC. 
The mm. Body Project LLC. You know you're sharing new things with me <laughs> right now. You're like, what? Okay. Okay. Uh, body, I've been trying to figure out how to pull all the things that I do under one umbrella. And so uh-huh. that umbrella is the Body Project LLC.com. So you can. I just want to thank you so much for doing this with me. Um, so I'm glad that you made time for me. Um, I'm really feeling so incredibly grateful for the generosity of you telling the truth about your body and about yourself. This has been so remarkable. And, you know, one of the things that has been such a joy and a pleasure in in doing this podcast uh, with people that I know is that I get to actually know them better. Uh, You always think you know your friends, you know their stories until you start asking them very specific and poignant questions. And sometimes it's about the most light and and flighty things. And sometimes it's about the most deep and profound things about like what has shaped them to become who they are. So this has just been such a gift, truly, with you in particular. 